from verse 13. And Carl has entitled his message God's True Son. From verse 13 then, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptised by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God sending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. And this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Thanks, Carl. Well, if, uh, if you've been away for a few weeks uh, and you've come back for the first time today uh, or if you're visiting here this morning for the first time, then uh, you're catching up with us in the middle of a series uh, uh, going through this, uh, this Gospel of Matthew uh, it's a book written by Matthew in around uh, 50 or 60 AD uh, and uh, it's a kind of biography, I guess, uh, of the life of Jesus. Uh, on Christmas Day a few weeks ago we saw uh, how Jesus was born, up, uh, born into a messed up family and into a messed up world to save messed up people. Uh, in the second chapter we saw uh, how the events of Jesus' early life fulfilled what God had promised in the Old Testament and that showed that Jesus really is the Messiah that God promised. Uh, last week, as uh, Chris has already alluded to, we saw that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He was sent to prepare the way 
for people to meet with God, to meet with God himself. We saw that John did that by calling people to repentance to choose between sin and God. Uh, We saw that there is this fundamental dividing line uh, between all of humanity, between people who choose uh, a powerful God in Christ Jesus uh, or people who choose sin uh, and uh, self-fulfilment. Well, the passage uh, that we're looking at this morning continues on from all those things and it continues on from where we left off last week with this idea of repentance. And it does that by beginning to unpack who Jesus is and how Jesus can possibly save us from our sin. Uh, The passage that uh, that we read earlier begins with an indication from the very beginning that Jesus is vastly different to everyone else who's come before him. Last week we saw that Jesus was, uh, John was baptising people in the River Jordan uh, and he baptised loads of people but suddenly Jesus comes to be baptised by John and the first surprise is that John is not that, uh, that willing to go ahead with it. He says, I shouldn't be baptising you, you should be baptising me. But John, uh, I guess, finally relents and he decides, no, Jesus, uh, I, I will baptise you. And then immediately after that happens, something extraordinary takes place again. There's this incredible voice from heaven and we get the three people of the, of the Trinity all appearing together at once. The Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove and the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. What is so special about Jesus? What's different about Jesus compared to everybody else who came to be baptised? Why is it that God loves him? Why is it that God is pleased with him? Well, Matthew is a clever writer uh, and he's clever because he puts right after those events the temptation of Jesus and he does that in order to explain to us what is special about Jesus. Why does God love Jesus so very much? Uh, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through verses uh, 1 to 11 in particular and just kind of unpack what it is that uh, Jesus showed when he was being tempted by the devil. Maybe the, uh, the first surprise uh, as we get to the first verse of chapter 4 is that Matthew tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the, dev- uh, into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So, so God has just said that uh, he loves this Jesus, that he's pleased with him. Uh, but he leads him into the, de- in, into the desert in order to be tempted. That seems like a, a kind of a strange thing to do, doesn't it? To put Jesus in harm's way uh, when God is pleased with him. But the first temptation that we come across uh, really begins to kind of help us understand, I think, gives us a way into understanding this whole episode. When, uh, when Satan first comes to Jesus, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights uh, and he's hungry, right? Uh, he's very hungry uh, and so Satan, being a clever tempter, he says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. When Satan says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, he's not saying, you know, if you're the son of God and I don't think you are. Satan isn't doubting who Jesus is. Uh, you can actually tell that from the Greek for some sort of really complicated reasons. You can tell that, that Satan doesn't doubt that for a minute. 
He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. What he's saying to Jesus is, what does that mean? What does it mean that you're the Son of God? You know, you're in this privileged position of being God's loved Son. What does that mean? He's challenging Jesus to reflect on the meaning of that relationship with God. And what Satan is doing here is he's tempting Jesus to use that position inappropriately. As Jesus responds to the temptation, we get a clearer uh, picture of what Jesus understood it to mean that he was the Son of God. Jesus says to Satan in verse 4, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The place where that is written is in Deuteronomy 8. You can see that if you've got footnotes at the bottom of your Bible. Uh, It says that it comes from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. And in fact, all of Jesus' responses in these verses in chapter 4 are all from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. Jesus is trying to show us something uh, about who he understands himself to be and what he understands himself to be doing. If you've got your Bible uh, with you, turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we'll read a little bit of that to try and get a clearer idea of what Jesus uh, was trying to say, not just to Satan but to us as well, about what it means that he is the Son of God. So Deuteronomy 8 uh, and we'll read from verse 1. Moses is uh, is speaking to the people of Israel. It's uh, Deuteronomy is his big sermon before he dies Uh, and this is what he says in chapter 8. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. One of the key phrases in those verses is the word test in verse 2. God says that the reason he led Israel through the desert for 40 years, the reason was in order to test them to know what was in their heart, to know whether or not they would obey his commands, whether they would obey him or whether they would disobey him. Well, what was, what was in Israel's heart? If you know Deuteronomy, you know the, you'll know the answer to that question. What happened when God tested Israel? Uh, you can find the answer to that in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, Moses is still speaking, uh, God, well God is speaking through Moses and he says in verse 6 of chapter 9, Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. In other words... God tested them in the desert for 40 years and what did he find out? He found out that the people were rebellious and hard-hearted. They'd followed other gods instead of following uh, the true God. 
And it's against that background that we have to understand Jesus' temptation uh, and his words to Satan. In the same way that God had led the people in the desert, God had led Jesus into the desert. In the same way that God had led the people for 40 years, he'd led Jesus in the desert for 40 days without food. And he'd done it, as he tested the people, he'd done it to test Jesus so that he would know whether Jesus would obey him or Jesus would disobey him. But importantly, Jesus was different from the Israelites, wasn't he? He was different in the very important sense that he, failed, he didn't fail to do what Israel failed to do. He followed God with all his heart and soul and strength. So what's the point? You know, what's the point? Why is God trying to show us this? The point is this, right? The point is that even if we've repented, we saw last week how important it is to repent and to turn to God, even if we've repented, even if we've turned from sin to the powerful God of heaven and earth, even if we've chosen to follow Christ rather than to enjoy the pleasures of the sin, even if we've done that, still our best at following Jesus is imperfect, isn't it? Our obedience to God is still imperfect obedience. Our trust in God is still imperfect trust. But here's the thing. Where we fail, where we're imperfect, Jesus remains steadfast in the face of Satan's temptations. Jesus continued to wait on God. He continued to trust God. He continued to trust that God would do what he promised. Jesus didn't act in disobedience. He didn't bite the hand that fed him. He trusted God and he knew that to sin against God would be fatal. Each of us, if we trust God at all, we trust him imperfectly, we follow Jesus imperfectly. But Jesus didn't do that. God tested Jesus and Jesus passed the test. But having failed the uh, the first test... Satan wasn't deterred. Uh, He was still going to try a few tricks and the next thing that he tried, the next trick he tried uh, was to take Jesus to a high part of the temple in Jerusalem and, uh, and to say to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. This, uh, this time Satan was a little bit cleverer. He tried to use the Bible. Uh, he quotes from Psalm 91. He says that he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I think what Satan is saying here is pretty clear, isn't it? He's saying to Jesus, throw yourself off this building and trust that God is going to save you. That's what God says in the Bible. He says that he's going to protect you. So try it out. Throw yourself down and see what happens. But Jesus again refuses and again he quotes from the Old Testament. It is written, says Jesus, do not put put the Lord your God to the test. This uh, next quote comes from Deuteronomy 6 uh, from verse 16. Uh, You might want to look that up, Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. Uh, And there this is what it says. Do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and and the decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers 
thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. So God says to the people in Jeremy, he says, don't test me. But he says, don't test me like you did before, like you did at Massah. Well, what happened at Massah? If you've got your Bible, we're going to turn back to another place. We're going to go to uh, Exodus chapter 17. See, Jesus, wants, Jesus said all these things. He, he used these significant quotes because he wants us to chase them up and to understand what he's saying about himself. What is he saying about himself? Well, first he wants us to understand uh, what these people did, how they tested God. So Exodus uh, chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They were almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out for it, out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Here is the question that the people fundamentally were asking Is God good? If He's good, well, then He should prove it. If God really cared about us, He'd give us water. Why has he brought us out here just to die? That might seem like a pretty innocuous question to ask. Is God good? You know, it might seem at, at, at face value to be a perfectly reasonable question. To know, you know, is God really a good God? But imagine that uh, you ask that question of a friend. Imagine that you've had a friend for 20 years who's always been a, a faithful friend. Okay, there have been hiccups along the way, but they've always been a good friend to you and one day they don't give you exactly what you want when you want it and you say to them, you don't care about me, you hate me, you just want me to die, don't you? If you are really good, you need to prove it to me. Imagine if you said that to a friend that you've been friends with for 20 years. It would be, wouldn't it, a, a, a terrible slap in the face. Bang. And that's what the people did to God. They said, if you're really good, show us. You know, let's not forget where these people have been. He'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He'd parted the Red Sea. He'd given them a, a, a pillar of fire to, to guide them by night and cloud to give them shade by day. He'd been looking after them for years and now they don't get what they want and they say, is God really good? Let him show it to us. And that's exactly what Satan was saying to Jesus. 
He's saying to Jesus, you trust God? Well, that's good for you. But is he really good? How do you know he's good? Put him to the test. Throw yourself down. Make him show you just how much he loves you. But Jesus wouldn't take any of that. He said to Satan, no. It's not right to put God to the test. Jesus trusted God where the Israelites failed to trust. And it's the same temptation that we can fall into as well, isn't it? That we ask ourselves, is God really good? Will he really do uh, good to us again? Even though he's been good to us in the past, we question. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't fall into the trap that you and I fall into so often of putting God to the test, of doubting God's goodness and of trying to manipulate God into showing kindness. God tested Jesus and Jesus passed the test. And even later in his life, even as he hung on the cross, even as he died for the sins of people like you and me, even as he died for sins that he didn't commit, he always trusted that God was a good God. He trusted where we fail to trust. Well, Satan is uh, almost at the end of his tether uh, and he has one final test to put Jesus through. The last test, uh, in the last test, Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain and he shows him, it says, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour probably makes sense to understand that what Satan was doing was showing Jesus a vision of, of the whole world and, and, uh, and he's saying to him, look, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give all this to you. Don't worry about what God's called you to do. Don't worry about going to the cross. You don't need to do all that to become uh, God's king over the world. Just bow down and worship me. There's, uh, there's really no subtlety to this suggestion, is there? I mean, the others before have been clever, but this one is just a flat-out challenge for Jesus to worship Satan. But Jesus uh, won't have a bar of it, and in verse 10 he says to Satan, Away from me, and again he quotes from the Old Testament, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's worth pausing to ask, uh, I think, whether or not we uh, have bowed down to other gods. Are there other things, that, uh, things other than God that we've put in the place of God, put in the place where God alone should be? You might, uh, you might worship your car, you might worship uh, your business, your personal happiness, you might worship your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you might worship your children, uh, you might worship your footy team, uh, you might worship a movie star. There's really no end uh, to the list of things that we can worship in the place of God. Uh, you might know that well-known uh, quote from G.K. Chesterton who said, when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. And it's true, when we cease to worship God, anything can capture our heart and take it away from him. Augustine of Hippo uh, a 4th century Christian, uh, used the devastating illustration of a man who gave his fiancée a ring. Uh, he gave her an engagement ring uh, and he asked the question, what would we think of that woman 
If having received that ring, she said, well, now that I've got this ring, I don't really need my fiancé anymore. I don't really want to see him ever again. What will we think of a woman like that? Augustine says, this man gave her that ring as a, as a token of his love, didn't he? He gave it to her so that she would love him, not the ring. And what's she done? She's loved the gift rather than the person who gave it to her. And so it is with God. God has given us this entire world. He's given us life and breath. He's given that to us as a token of his love and it is too small a thing for us not to love him with our whole heart. It's too small a thing not to worship him with every fibre of our being. In fact, it's deeply offensive to him for him to give us all those things as a token of his love and to say, I don't want to see your face anymore. I'll just take the world and life, thanks God. How can God, who's given so much to people like us, how can he choose to keep on living with people who choose to love the gifts of God over God himself? What are the consequences of loving and worshipping something else more than God? Well, to answer that question, let's turn back again to uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus' quote this time comes from verse 13. What are the consequences of loving uh, and worshipping something else other than God? Well, this is what God says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. Fear the Lord your God. It's another way of saying, worship the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Why? Because the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. What are the consequences uh, of worshipping something else in the place of God? The consequences are being destroyed and being unable to live with God. See, here's the problem. Here's what God is saying in Deuteronomy 6. If you want to live with me, you need to be perfect. You need to love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. God's making an exclusive claim. He's saying, your life has to be all about me because you belong to me. There's no other way Unless you serve and worship me only, you cannot live with me. That's what he's saying. Unless you serve and worship me only, you cannot live with me. And so here's the problem. If our repentance is imperfect repentance, if our obedience is imperfect obedience, if our trust is imperfect trust, how can we know and live with God? Even when we cry out to God and say, God, save me from my divided heart, save me from my divided loyalties, save me from my sin, even when we cry out to God in Jesus' name, we're still not perfect. God changes our lives, doesn't he? He changes our lives irrevocably. 
We have new priorities, new motivations, new loves, new passions, new obedience, but we're still not perfect. How can imperfect people live with God? What is the long-term future for imperfect people? The answer to that problem, says God in Matthew chapter 4, is Jesus. How can imperfect people live with God? Well, the answer is in Jesus, God's perfect son. You see, into our world of paralysing idolatry and, and disobedience, into our world of selfishness and ignorance of God, into this world came Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, the son that God loves, because of his obedience, the son with whom the father is pleased. Into our world came God's perfect son and God tested him and God tried him and God showed him to be faithful. And what God is saying is this. Around this true son of mine, I am building a new community and a new world and a new universe. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? What does that really mean? What it means is really very simple. It means that our status before God, here it is, our status before God is entirely defined by our relationship to God's true Son. Our status before God is entirely defined by nothing else than our relationship with God's one true perfect son. God is pleased with Jesus. He succeeded where humanity failed. Jesus was obedient where we're disobedient. But if we repent and turn to Jesus, when Jesus wins, we win. When Jesus defeats Satan, we defeat Satan. If we repent and return to Jesus... When Jesus dies, we're forgiven. If we repent and turn to Jesus, God saves us because God is forming a new community and a new world and a new universe around his true son, Jesus Christ. I think Jesus uh, summarised it the best when he said in John chapter uh, 4, my food and drink is to do the will of my Father in heaven. His food and drink was to do the will of our Father in heaven. What's our food and drink? Our food and drink is Jesus. He won life through his obedience. We win life by no other fact than by entrusting ourselves to him. There is only one way into God's community. We can love and know Jesus and be saved or we can reject Jesus and not be saved. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, were the whole realm of nature ours, that would be an offering far too small. 
because your amazing love demands our life and every part of us. Father, words cannot express the majesty and the honour and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, he is perfect and holy and righteous. And against him, Father, we look as we rightly are, sinful people. But Lord, thank you for this great treasure and this great truth that our life is not in our obedience, but our life is in him. Lord, he won life for us if only we put our trust in him. And so, Father, we ask that you would enable each one of us to do that and to have the unbounded and inexpressible joy which comes from knowing that our salvation is bound up not in ourselves but in our faithful High Priest, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.